You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to Drinks with Tony. Today, my guest is Christy Alexander Hallberg. Check out her new book, Searching for Jimmy Page, a novel. And in this interview, we talk panic attacks. We talk life after death. We talk what it was like meeting Joan Jett in 1982. We talk the magic of Led Zeppelin. We talk the magic of writing. We talk and talk and talk and... This is Christy Alexander Hallberg, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Christy Alexander Hallberg. She's the author of Searching for Jimmy Page. Christy, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm oddly good. Like, right right when you said that, I was just like, I hadn't thought about it. And I'm like, wait, I feel good. Well, you know, everybody says this when they come on. I'm great. I, I just keep waiting for somebody to say, you know what? I feel like shit today. Yeah. And, it, it, it's, and I'm good. Yeah. And, and, it, and I think it shocks me more to feel good sometimes than it does to feel crappy. Cause like crappy feels like status quo, you know, where it's just like, I feel good. And then it's just like, I knock myself on the back of the head and go, okay, I don't know why I feel good, but let's bottle this up and do something with it. <laughs> well, I, I'm doing well. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. And I, and I love your accent. Let's tell the listeners where you're at. I'm, I live right outside of Asheville, North Carolina. I'm originally from the eastern part of the state, Greenville, North Carolina. Huh. So I'm a southern girl. Yeah. Now, when you listen to me, do you go, oh, God, that accent? No, no, not at all. <laughs> but do you, you're in L.A. Yeah. Like what? Like, do you like is it does it feel like an accent to you or is it just is it too much of like Hollywood and stuff being thrown around where you get that California speak and it feels normal? <laughs> It, it it does it feels normal yeah huh. it's it's the non-accent yeah but it is an accent it's not the non-accent because mm-hmm. if if we if we had all of the entertainment in north carolina then we would be the ones where you would be like oh it's so cute what you do <laughs> well i remember being on a train in uh, california in the bay area years ago and the conductor came by and asked for my ticket. And I, I don't know why I said something to him rather than just handing it to him. And, and he leaned over and said, where are you from? Uh-huh. So I, I thought, yeah, Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. Did he say it in a polite way or did he say it? Oh, in yeah. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. He was very polite. Cause I'm from the San Francisco Bay area and the, and politeness doesn't run to the, the politeness doesn't run through the vessel, the bloodstream up there as much as uh, I wish it would. I, you know, I didn't find that to be true. I lived in the Bay Area for a year after I got my BS in English in 1991. I, I got on a bus, spent four days on a bus moving from Greenville, North Carolina to the Bay Area. I lived in Mountain View for a while and then uh, Los Altos. And oh, my God. In Palo Alto. Yeah. Oh, that's rad. So I, I thought people were very nice. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's a kinder area, I think. Did you did mm. you listen? Did you do you listen to college radio? Because I used to DJ at the radio station in Los Altos, KFJC. That's been, that's been so long ago. I, I don't. I want you to remember every single radio station you listened to when you were in the <laughs> Bay Area. I, I don't. This was 1992. That you know, Mountain View, Los, Los Altos Hills was gorgeous and then and that's that's exactly when i was djing at the at those places really? and, just, and and it's just like i would like drive there and just i would it, it was kind of a rich area for me so yeah, i just like yeah. i'd come to it and be like this is lush and gorgeous oh yeah well i didn't have any money i lived in a house with a rental house with five other people and and when i first got there i got a job with a criminal defense attorney in palo alto which was an eye-opening experience he looked just like Jerry Garcia and um, he was, <laughs> I guess I can say this since I'm not calling his name, but um, yeah, let's yeah, ruin he, his reputation. Let, let's he go. Was, I, unfortunately, I suspect he's not among the living anymore, but um, he, let's just say he kept his, his um, clients hopping, trying to, 
or not just his, his client, well, people that he was representing, he would not show up for court dates or he would, um, there was pay involved. That was, it was a, a really interesting, strange experience. And I remember when I quit, I just, I split one day and left a note and made sure I got my pay because he was notorious for not paying his bills at the office and the landlord would come knocking and, um, yeah. And then I got a job at Klutz Press and that was great. That was, I was the receptionist and I'm, I'm from this conservative small town in Eastern North Carolina. So working at Klutz Press was amazing. They had an office cat. You can have office cats in Greenville, North Carolina in 1991. And I could go to work in shorts and it was, they were such a wonderful company for a young person straight out of college to work for. And, and so you took a, a legal turn where you, were you, were you uh, on your way to be um, study for law and then you kind of zip back over to uh, literary? No, I got the job at the law office. It was, it was a one room office in a suite of offices and uh, a one, one, one lawyer. And I was answering the phone and typing up stuff. I won't even say I was a paralegal. I was just, I was the receptionist there too. I, I worked at, I worked at uh, the law department in visa. I was the law librarian for two years. Oh. It was just soul killing to be around that environment. I'm just like, everybody mm. just sucks. Oh my God. <laughs> and it's just, it was beautiful to know that not everybody sucks. I was so young. Yeah. So, yeah. The, um, oh, what was I going to ask you? Oh, the, the thought of, um, life after death and, and essentially coming back to your book, searching for Jimmy page okay. and such things. Well, what do you think? What, what, like when you're, when you're working, when you're working on this book or having these thoughts, what do you think of the, the world of life after death? These are the, and, and mainly I just ask these questions for myself so I can know. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard you talk about this before. On oh, really? Oh. oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is it that common of a theme? <laughs> so I, I can't remember who it was, but, but she was talking about, well, you know, energy doesn't die. And yeah, um, I liked that one. See that, that right. makes sense. Yeah. 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 But see, I grew up Methodist. I was confirmed in the Methodist church and yeah. did the whole confirmation classes and everything. Um, and, and then took a bunch of world religions classes in college and philosophy classes in college and read a lot and um, decided that that was just not something that I could swallow anymore. So I'm not religious. Um, I'm not even really particularly spiritual. Um, hmm. I can't answer the question, what happens after death? I don't know. And I, I don't trust anybody who seems to to think they know either. Right, right. So um, I, I just, I, I love, and, and I deal with this a lot in the book, just the, the idea of spirituality being this creative thing that is akin to art and the stories that we tell ourselves. I mean, every morning we wake up and we tell ourselves a story about ourselves and who we think we are, who, who we think we were, who we want to be. There's so much of, of, rationalization in, in our everyday lives and in the form of, you know, our own personal narratives, who am I kind of thing. And that's a lot of, of what the book is about. So that's sort of a, a rambling answer to your question. It's, it's kind of a non-answer to your question, really. It's a fantastic answer to the question. I want to stand up to that quote, stand up to that answer. That's great. That was so so when you were when you were a Methodist, did you believe in heaven and hell? Did you were you were you solid in that faith, and then kind of flipped it as you got older? I was scared shitless. Yeah, I, I saw uh, quite by accident The Exorcist when I was. Oh my god! I still haven't well, seen that movie. I can't bring myself to watch it. <laughs> I'm scared see, of it. As, as somebody who's not religious anymore, you would think that that, that would not bother <laughs> me, but to this day, I I can't <laughs> sit through that. That. You know, there are a couple of iconic lines from that movie that one of which I definitely will not repeat here, but that that will, yeah, that that will send shudders through my whole body. So I remember watching that and just being terrified of demon possession. And this kind of goes back to an episode that you did not that long ago about that very thing. And I, for a while there, I was sleeping with a Bible 
when I was a kid. And I used to, I used to have night terrors. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have night terrors and they were almost every night. And I I remember waking up and being so terrified. I, I, I couldn't articulate. I couldn't even scream. It was more like a, just a, a squeak and my mother's bedroom was right next to mine and she would come in and, and kind of lead me out and into her room and I would sleep with her. So there, there's what religion did. I won't say for me, I'll say to me is um, instill this preternatural fear of dying in me and this preternatural fear of, of evil consuming me. So it's something that when I began to read more widely and, and I don't mean to sound arrogant at all. I, what do I know? I I just, I mean, the more philosophy I read, the more I I read about other religions and saw the overlap, saw the, the, the commonalities in the creation stories, um, the more I, I felt a little bit freer and a little bit less constrained to this fear that I had. So religion was very constricting for me. See, now that, that sounds healthy because when I started reading these other things and, th- and realizing, oh, wait, maybe, maybe the, you know, live my, my, uh, what, what was my heaven and hell that was ingrained in me that I thought was absolute truth. When I started to read these other things, it's sh- my belief system shattered and it scared the crap out of me. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, just... I think I went through that for a period before I got to yeah. a place of, of comfort with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, I, it, it is terrifying when you have your belief system shaken. Yeah. E- even if it's a belief system, that's an outer space. <laughs> You're just like, wait yeah. a second. Yeah. I, I, I didn't believe I was in outer space. Yeah, I, I, I tell people I'm religious, not spiritual. That's, that's my, okay. that's I, interesting. <laughs> nobody says okay. that everyone, everyone goes, I'm spiritual, mm. but not religious. That's their right. like, big virtue. And you're just going, so I just go, no, I'm religious, not spiritual. Which <laughs> is kind of, <laughs> kind of shifts the whole narrative. Wait, isn't spirituality with religion? No, no, I'm just religious. <laughs> It often is not with religion. There's often a, a lack of spirituality with religion, organized religion. You know, it's um, and I, uh, I I like when you were talking about um, the creativity. You mentioned like creativity and like mm-hmm. writing and spirituality. I believe mm-hmm. in that so much that I feel like whatever we're doing as creatives is kind of really spiritual. I don't know what yeah. we're getting in touch with. I don't know if you feel that same way when you're working on something or. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I, it, it translates to the story too, searching for Jimmy page. There's, there's so much um, spirituality in terms of the music and, and Luna, the narrator is a writer and there's so much ritual involved with listening to music or creating whatever art she's creating so I, I, that's, that's where I find spirituality. That's where I find, if, if you want to call it religion or spirituality, whatever. I, I, for me, it's in the art. It's in that kind of creation, which comes from this, this place that you can't name inside or maybe outside. I don't know. And I've certainly, and you probably have too, had moments of going, where the hell did that come from? Because I'm like at this particular moment, writing above my ability or I I don't know where that insight came from or I don't know where that idea or that sentence or so there is a certain kind of, um, for lack of a better term, spirituality, I feel when I do write when when I'm on when I feel like it's really cooking. So what happens before you hit that like trans transcendent sentence mm. it what do you, is it is like is it afterwards you go wait a second where did that come from or did it, when you're in the middle of it is are you in the middle of it and not even realizing what you're doing and then come it's, how, what is it like for you no i'm not talking about i guess what they call automatic writing I, i'm i'm talking about after it's done and you read over it and go that's pretty oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. I don't, I don't, where'd that come from? 
But um, far more often what happens is, damn, that's awful. Or right. you have that feeling more or the, the most terrifying thing for me is, is looking at the blank screen, looking at the blank page. And what am I, what if I can't do it again? There's that, there's always that fear that it's over. I'm done. I can't, I can't write anything again. And I, and I experience that almost every day. Yes. I think most people do. You know, it's uh, someone who blew my mind like years ago in any video was this guy, Robert Crace, who's got like 22 bestsellers on the New York times <sighs> bestselling list. Like, and, and he has the same fear when he hits every mm-hmm. book and, and he thinks it's over and he thinks he can never do whatever he did again. But he said the only up, upside he has to that is he's felt that fear 22 times. So he knows. So it's kind of like, Oh, there it is. And, um, you know, I mean, I've, I, get, I get panic attacks. I even I had like a really good one on Sunday and I was just like, oh, no. I thought I was going to lose my mind. And then and then it comes back to, you know, all my therapy stuff. And I want, oh, wait, you know, I'm, I'm a, I've, I get out of these. Everything turns out OK. Usually one of these won't be OK. It'll be a heart attack. But this one isn't, <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden everything's like, oh, OK, back to status quo. But okay, well, don't take this the wrong way, but that actually gives me some comfort because I, I go through the same thing. I, I remember a few years ago, I was having really bad heart palpitations. And one night in particular, drove myself to the ER because I thought I was having mm-hmm. a heart attack. And yeah. you go in and they do all the tests and then the doctor comes out and says, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, we're thinking panic attack and it, I'm just high strung and this is my nature, but I, I'm, I'm with you. you. You always, even though you know that probably what's going on is you just need to calm down and go back to the work you did in, in with your therapist yeah. and, and channel that. But you, there's always that fear of, Oh no, this time it's going to be the big one, Elizabeth, uh, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this yeah. time you're going to do the, the red Fox thing and you're going to exit. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, I totally thought that on Sunday. It was just, and, and then, but it's, but there's, there's this like weird comfort of like, Oh wait, I got through that one. So, you know, mm. you know, now, no, it's the, what's the, what do they say? It makes you stronger, but that, that's a lie. It doesn't make you stronger. What <laughs> <laughs> oh, doesn't man. kill me makes you stronger. Yeah. Uh, no, it just didn't get me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Who was, who was the, who was the idiot that said that crap? I was it uh <laughs> I don't know, but he's dead now. Yeah. It didn't it didn't make him stronger, it killed him. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm having fun um working. I'm working on a project that's kind of a um playing with life after death as well. And I'm finding great comfort in writing this story, even mm-hmm. though I know this story does not exist and like mm-hmm. you know in what it is, it's kind of beautiful to just pretend in the afterlife. Wow. So your characters are actually dead. They're mm-hmm. in the afterlife. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That would be fun to, to play around in, in that end of the pool. I ne- is I never thought I would write anything like that. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's just like there. And then my, so I might be Elron Hubbard in about five years. I mean, I don't know, you know, <laughs> this could be the Dianetics. This could be my oh, ticket. No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mm. Is this your is this your first book? This is my first book. It, yeah. Yes, it it is. The, that got out to I the did. masses, uh, right? Uh, yeah, I read my first book when I was eleven or twelve. Really? And that was oh uh, yeah, I was in pencil. Uh huh. Do you still have it? I I don't because oh. what ha- okay what happened is I had all my old writings in a file cabinet in a, a house that um, we were renting out. And those people decided when they were done with the house, they would leave and take whatever they wanted that was in the house with them. So I'm, I'm sure they trashed all the crap in the file cabinet that the, all those stories were in and took the file cabinet. But um, that's where that book was. Wow. And it, it was it was just this total ripoff. I was in seventh grade. It was just total ripoff of S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders because cool. I was obsessed with that book. Yeah. And I, it, it, in my book, the story revolved around a girl gang. And so they were called the She Devils, in fact. I remember that. 
and I passed it around to my classmates in my seventh grade class. So there were several people who read it, but it was it was awful. And it was it was just a total ripoff of Essie Hinton. So at 11 years old, you were not only a writer, but you had an audience. <laughs> I, I force fed them that book. They, they sort uh. of had my friends had to read it. Well, I mean, don't we, you know, in book marketing today, I feel like we got to force feed everyone too, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> we're in this weird, like, you better be on social. A friend of mine, she's, she's, they were, t- they're talking about a book deal and they looked at her uh, Instagram and they're like, you need a lot more followers. That's what they're worried about. It's like, no, no. How about craft? Do you remember craft? Craft was fun. No. How many followers do you have? And I'm like, nah, forget about it. I'm just, I'm going to stay poor and have craft. And wait for it all to turn around in 2073. Right. Is she, <laughs> is, is this person nonfiction or fiction? She's both. Uh, mostly okay. nonfiction. Cause, yeah, because I'm thinking that people pay more attention to the author platform for nonfiction writers than they, than they oh, do for fiction okay. writers. Yeah. You know, they, they, people, publishers want that built-in audience for, for folks writing nonfiction. At least that was what I came across in researching author platform when my book got accepted huh. and I, I had to do all that stuff trying to, to build up an audience and, and all that kind of thing and luckily yeah. I, I kind of had a built-in one with Led Zeppelin fans yeah yeah and and so and and that that brings us to why Led Zeppelin what does Led Zeppelin do for you Led Zeppelin is you know <laughs> here's how I've described to many interviewers about my reaction to wait, not just me, not just you've talked to interviewers of it. Oh, I've been cheating on you, Tony. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we got it out. We could talk about it after the broadcast. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, but, um, the first time I saw him in the song remains the same, the Led Zeppelin concert movie, I was 15 years old and, and, and I love this, this juxtaposition because I was coming home from church with my mother walking into what became a religious experience for me when I I first saw him on the screen. And when they filmed the concert footage for The Song Remains the Same, the movie came out in 77, I think, but the concert footage was filmed in Madison Square Garden in 73, and he he would have been about 29. And I walked in and it it was like the Messiah had arrived. That's how I've, I've described my reaction, which was visceral and immediate. Yeah. because he just encapsulated all that and that the whole band not just Jimmy they, they really encapsulated so much that I was missing as a, a young girl in a small southern town in 1985 but that I really couldn't even articulate I didn't really know what I was missing I just knew I was interested in more than what was going on at Sunday school and Although I will say it was Sunday school when I first heard about the Manson murders, which which absolutely fascinated me. So there were some interesting things going on in Sunday school, but not many. Mostly you heard about the dangers of rock and roll. And you remember the 80s when this was like the the heart of the satanic panic. And there's this whole list of of artists, including Led Zeppelin, who um, were accused of, of inserting subliminal messages in their in their work, Stairway to Heaven being one song. So this was all going on, which I just thought was utter bullshit, and came home and, and experienced this, this show. I'd heard the music to a degree, but I, I just absolutely became mesmerized with the band and with him in that single moment. And everything changed, and it's really never wavered that that passion. That's that so obsession. cool. Yeah, and I, and I use obsession not in the pejorative. It's you know some it's, obsessions, of course, can be dark, but then others can propel you forward and become part yeah. of the the landscape of your life. Yeah. And that has, and he's been a constant in my life. That music has been a constant. It's gotten me through a, a whole lot of personal tragedy. Isn't it fantastic how music like brings us together and take it? T- I feel like that, <clears throat> like music is a language almost that it's a, it, we, English, like language is just limited. We're, yeah. we're limited with, but you can hit music and that's, that's a way of speaking that nobody can speak, but we can almost speak it to everybody at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, that's a cool experience. Wow. And it so was. what, what was your first concert? Did you, uh, did you ever, uh, well, yeah. 
Yeah. My first concert. This is going to be embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not embarrassed of this. My first concert was Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Oh, that's was, a great. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's like legend. That. Oh, wow. She's, she is, was, and is such a yeah. badass. What, and, uh, yeah. what, what year was that? 1982. Nice. So I, I think it was 1982. It was the year that I Love Rock and Roll came out. So you got and to go so, to a concert young. That's, you were in a religious family and you got to go to that. How did you score that? Well, there's, yeah, there's a reason for that. And not only did I get to go to the concert, but I got to go backstage and meet her. Really? And- oh, my God. What, the, <laughs> what was it like meeting Joan Jett at that age? And she's that age. She was exhausted after the show. I'll never uh-huh. forget that. But she was very sweet to me. She signed my ticket stub, which was also in the file cabinet. At that no! House. no, no, So that's gone. Um, I have an oh. autograph. I met I met James Brown a few years later and I have an autograph. That's gone too. Oh my God. So here's the story. My my father, who's long retired now, was assistant vice chancellor for student affairs at East Carolina University, which was in my hometown. So he booked all these acts. And really? So, yeah. So, so, he had, so he had access to them. Oh yeah, yeah. He huh. had access to them. So I would, I would say, oh, yeah, I want to go see that person or that person. And I, I get to go to the show and go backstage if, if the artist was amenable to that. And I met John Fogarty that way. And he could not have been sweeter. Now, James Brown scared the crap out of me. Uh-huh. But John Fogarty was a real sweetheart. Huh. See, John Fogarty, um, James Brown, Joan Jett. Who else did you get access to? I saw the kinks and that was a, that was a really big deal to me. That was in, um, I want to say 84 or five. I think it was. Wow. You were going through so much cool stuff when you were young. (laughs) Oh my God. I I think that was the year the album with come dancing on it Uh came out. Um, I did not get to meet them. I I was, I missed about the last quarter of the concert because I was, jogging around backstage from one door to the next because I, I had a crush on Ray Davies uh-huh. and I wanted to meet him so badly but they didn't go backstage after the show they went straight from the stage to the limo oh, so wow. they walked <clears throat> past me but they didn't stop yeah so oh well yeah okay who else <laughs> oh gosh you didn't know to bring your list I should have no. prepared you <laughs> I did. The only time I have seen Jimmy Page live was at Virginia Beach in 1998. Uh And that was when he and Robert Plant were together. And that didn't have anything to do with my dad, who by then had retired anyway. Um, And I was in the nosebleed section for that concert. But it was fantastic. Yeah. So what's interesting is you you found the you found the Led Zeppelin show after you'd been to other concerts. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that yeah. was I saw I saw the song remains the same the first time in '85. So you're right. I would have already gone to see Joan Jett and some of the others. Yeah. So you kind of had you had the um, the sensation of what a live experience is like. So it was probably easier to um, kind of translate that, you know, on two dimensional, but realize that mm-hmm. being there would have been even more of a spiritual transcendence. Right. Right. Well, for, music has always been this this very emotional and spiritual thing for me. And there's a lot of ritual in the book when it comes to listening to music for these characters. It's music is more important than religion to them in the book. And it's it's really the first art form that grabbed me. Yeah. And and, and boy, did it grab me. I remember Santa Claus bringing me an Elvis album when I was seven. And it it just goes on from there. My brother, I'm the youngest of four. My long shot, the next to the youngest is 10 years older than I. And um, that sibling is my brother, who was a rock drummer for various bands in town, rock bands in town. And I just idolized him. And he... He is why I was drawn to Zeppelin, I think, initially, mm-hmm. because he, he idolized John Bonham. Mm-hmm. That was his favorite drummer. But I would, my mother would, 
would take, if, if he wasn't playing in bars, when I was little, she would take me to say he'd be playing. I remember a couple of times he played in parking lots at restaurants or someplace with his bands. And she would take me to see him and he would have jam sessions at home and his musician friends would come over and they'd be on the patio playing. So music has been an important part of my life always. So you, so you, that's so great. You had older brothers to guide you that way. Yeah. That's yeah. fun. Wait, what now? How were your, how were your parents when you, when you were just like, ah, oh, this, you know, I don't think I'm religious anymore. Like, were, were they like, were your brothers kind of, were they staying in the faith or were they leaving? How, how was that? Well, the oldest of the four who is what, 14 years older than I am, I think um, he, he is a, shall I say, and he would not like me to put it this way, but a devout atheist. And he's, um, yeah, he got into, he kind of paved the way. Hmm. He, he got in trouble with our parents when he decided at 14, he'd read the Bible a couple of times mm -hmm. by 14 and announced before the family was about to go to church one morning. Um, I don't believe any of this. I, I think it's mythology, just like every other mythology and wow. I won't be a hypocrite. I'm not going anymore. And he got in trouble for that, but he didn't go and he never went again. And, and I respect him for that. What kind of trouble did he get in? Like, what was, the, what was the, what was the punishment? He, he got a spanking. Yeah. He, At 14. He, he, yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't believe him. Oh, wow. <laughs> Am I bringing up trauma? <laughs> okay. I could get off the trauma. We don't have I, I don't want to get my parents in trouble. Oh, because, well, there's a limit of statue. Uh, statu oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I, it, it, oh my gosh, we go, to, to put it in context everyone got spanked in the 70s well absolutely in the yeah. 70s everybody got spanked yeah i was getting still i was still getting spanked in the 80s so you know <laughs> now i gotta pay extra for it but back then it was mom and dad right right that's <laughs> <laughs> just a stupid joke i would never oh, wow. pay for any transactions <laughs> like that i gotcha yeah um but that it's what a what a interesting stand for a 14 year old to take that's 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 got a lot of guts yeah i was older i was i was much older and my parents divorced when i was seven mm -hmm. so this is my father and i have not talked a lot about this my mother and i did and, and by the time my mother died she was an atheist so really um, yeah yeah she she died of cancer when i was 33 and the last three months of her life, we, we brought her from the hospital back home and, and my sister and I spelled each other, just pretty much moving in, taking care of her with the, the help of, of hospice, home hospice uh, help. Um, and, and we would ask her, is there somebody, uh, you know, clergy that you want to talk to or anything? And she, no, no, I'm good. So that old um, cliche about there are no atheists in foxholes doesn't doesn't hold true all the time and she held firm and and um decided that that was just not it, it's like what you see behind the curtain so mm -hmm. to speak you can't go back There's, yeah. it, it would not be real it wouldn't be honest it would just be simply to save your ass and that's why I'll never soul. watch The Exorcist because I know if I watch it that'll freak me out and I'll have a bible open at my bed <laughs> Even though I believe yeah. it's mythology too, but you know, there's still that what if. <laughs> well, well, sure. And and again, I, I don't want to sound like, oh, I know everything. I we don't know what happens, but I, I just think there's so much and there's so much good that has been done in the name of religion. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say that there hasn't. There certainly has. Yes, I, and, I agree with that a lot. Yeah. Absolutely. But there's been so much bad, so much corrupt stuff and, and so much um, soul corrupting stuff that's gone on that I, I, I just I can't believe we're talking so much about this, but it, it's just become a subject that I, I feel pretty strongly about. And I'm, I'm really glad that that's not a part of my my life anymore. When uh... I won't, we don't have to go into detail about it, but when your brother did 
proclaim at 14 his proclamation did that scare you because you thought maybe he was like gone wayward that you might not see him in heaven or that he that god was going to do something with him didn't scare me then because i'm not even sure i was born oh okay um, or, or if i ha- if i was i was very small it oh, scared okay. me later it scared right. me later because i i got you know i was confirmed in the church and i went to youth group and and did all these like the Bible camp stuff and was really thought you, you've got to be gung ho about this because I don't want to burn in hell. Yeah. And, and so I remember he didn't really have a lot of conversations with me about that, but the, the few that he did, I did. Yeah. It was scary. Yeah. And I, I worried for, for him, I worried for his soul, but that's the whole point of religion really. Yeah. So, Isn't it, isn't it funny that when, cause when you, when, uh, cause I, I got the same experience when you think about, oh man, I need to be gung ho about this so I don't go to hell. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, it's like, I need to go preach so I don't die at Armageddon. And, yeah. and it's not the reward because for us, the reward was living forever in paradise or other people, the reward is heaven. So it's not like, oh my God, I'm so excited to go do this so I can, so I can get to heaven. It's like, I got to do this so I don't go to hell. <laughs> it's, exactly. it's interesting. Exactly. Because think about who's going to be hanging out in heaven as opposed to who's going to be hanging out in hell. Now, there's the the burning factor in hell. That's the scary part. But they're going to be so much more cooler people in hell than than in heaven. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it it just shows that, you know, the God of the Bible is really boring because he just wants the most vanilla, boring people. And he's just like, this guy's got to just be like, oh, (laughs) <laughs> so so who wants to watch family ties reruns again and then everyone's excited about it and they're like yes let's do that wow, after we yeah. sing hymns and then in hell it's just like you know let's play black sabbath records backwards again. <laughs> <laughs> let's hang out with jim morrison and jimmy hendrix and yeah. that's yeah. just it sounds like more fun yeah no i i, I you know the, one of my first concerts where i kind of had that messiah moment was fishbone this okay. uh yeah and i in 1985 no 1986 and oh, wow. um and i and i so my dad would would never let me go to concerts but i i snuck around a little bit and then this one he would let me go see black bands if it was black soul really? there was something about black people that they had that they weren't connected with the devil as far as he was concerned <laughs> so so the band untouchables were playing with fishbone and i played him the most mellow song and it's just like <laughs> Well, those sound like wholesome fellas. And so he took us to the show. And then I'm like, hey, dad, like right before Fishman came on, do you mind if my friends and I go toward the stage? And he's like, oh, as long as I can see you. The minute they came out, the whole place was a pit. People were stage yeah. diving left and right. <laughs> oh, my gracious. <laughs> just like going, oh, crap. I think I think my son got one over me. <laughs> That's interesting. How, and that's, I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier, the stories that we tell ourselves to rationalize behavior and to rationalize likes and dislikes and, and proclivities. It's, it's, it's interesting that, okay, you can go see them because that's a black band, but not this other. Right. Because when I was really young, I, he took me to see Smokey Robinson. Mm. And so, and so those were the kind of hey, things wow. like that's, that's good, clean fun, you know, but it, any, anything that was uh rock that had a rock strum to it was, you know, off limits kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Or if they screamed, <laughs> if they, you know, and then, and then I oh, just, gosh. I found my calling when I was, I remember, I remember one night when I was a kid tuning into this uh, radio show that played one hour a week. It was after Bible study. It was called Maximum Rock and Roll. And I had I had my headphones for it. And to hear Black Flag and Henry Rollins screaming yeah. at the top of his lungs. And I was 14 years old and I went, oh my God, the, what what I'm what I'm here. And I didn't articulate it like this then. I I can now looking back. What I was hearing was what my emotions were that couldn't be expressed and that no one was telling me about. And it yeah. was, and I just had a connection with, whoa. It's just like they, they spoke to me and how I felt, you know, testosterone right. bouncing all over the place. While I, while I dare not touch myself down there, or I might die at Armageddon. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that, that feeling that you get that you can't articulate. And, and I think art, art is the only thing that can really do that. At least that's been my experience. And, and I use that as an umbrella term, not just for music, but 
film, I have so many wonderful memories of watching old black and white movies on TV with my mom. Yeah. Bogey and Bacall movies and, and, uh, you know, all these foreign movies that initially my novel started out as, uh, well, one of the incarnations of it was as a memoir. Uh-huh. And it, it, the, the film Last Tango in, in Paris, directed by Bertolucci and starring Marlon Brando, played a, a big role in it. And huh. so I, I, art, film, literature, music, all of that has, has been such an important part of my life. And, and it all kind of creeps into what I write. It, you know, you just, we got we to gotta come together with like an anthology of like, what transformed what transformed mm-hmm. us and meant everything to us and in, in, in different authors like writing their little essays because yeah I or something because you know this this is the stuff we don't kind of hear from everyone it's mm-hmm. um the, the the those transformative moments and you know then in, in film I mean there, there's what there's this there's this one movie where I just I can never not tear up at the end and I can't remember the movie because I, with my therapist yesterday we were talking about sadness <laughs> my, my, my <laughs> this was hilarious because um my uh my homework for this week is to be sad five minutes a day so I have to work on my sadness <laughs> so what movie is it where I always tear up at the end I can't remember oh my god it's probably because I'm avoiding sadness <laughs> Okay. Well, do you remember the era or anybody in it? Because oh, now I'm, I'm going to worry about this. Now I want to know. I am losing my mind every single time. Oh my God. What movie is it? Um, oh, you know what? I, oh, 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 oh. And it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a bad movie to like now in the age of me too, but Manhattan. Oh, wow. That, yeah. I love that movie though. Yeah, well, the, the, I, the beauty of it is there, there's the beauty of that movie is Muriel Hemingway is the smartest person in the whole film. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and just that alone, like, like there's all these idiots in their 40s. And then there's Muriel Hemingway, who's 17, yeah. turning 18. And she's just like, she's the only one that has life together. Right, right. And then that breaking moment when Woody Allen's going, oh, man, I screwed up. And then he goes after her and she's just like, no, I'm on my mm-hmm. way. I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. And then she well, says, that'll some- do it. she says something to him. There's a line that she says, and it's almost the last line of the, I think it's the last line of the film. And it's, it's something like, um, God, I can't remember the line every time. And I'm like, I got chills just saying that the, the, the I remember the line, mm-hmm. but that, vis- but that visceral emotional experience of something that can take you on that journey. And especially a film like that, that's kind of like, we're wacky we're wacky and then all of a sudden (laughs) it's just like it slams down the whole theme of the movie and life and how things are right in front of you and you're too stupid to see them you know yeah yeah that would do it that that would that would channel your your inner sadness yeah yeah do you have one of those movies where you just kind of like go oh dear lord I have a lot. Yeah. The one that immediately comes to mind is I've never made it through terms of endearment without crying. Oh, um, but, I haven't but, seen that since the movies. I need to I have a theater release when I was a kid. I need to watch that again. I've never made it through that without crying. Um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank for, for something more artistic than that, but no, um, we, we don't care. It could be an Adam Sandler movie. You know, I, 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 that I, one gets me yeah 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 um yeah. yeah what's the um yeah i can't think of any adam sandler movies right now you know a movie i just saw that blows that blew my mind with shirley mclean was the apartment and i had never seen that movie in my oh, life God, until a year I ago love that movie yeah, yeah that's amazing and talk about and, a great the perfect ending where mm-hmm. he's just like i love you and she goes pick a card boom yeah, boom. yeah that that is so she's so natural in yeah. that movie and and the whole the suicide attempt and that's just such a, a great movie oh i'll tell you this comes to mind the end of splendor in the grass with natalie wood and warren Beatty. i've never seen that i have to watch that oh heart-wrenching because they're so obsessed with each other and they just can't make it work and they they have gone through this trauma and they've split up 
And at the very end, she comes to see him and he's moved on with his life. She's moved on with hers, but it's like, um, let, let's, let's have closure. And it's so painful to watch that. And it's so well done. But I, I, I used to want to be Natalie Wood or Judy Garland. That's, yeah. Those, yeah, that's a great movie. Have you ever, have you ever thought of writing for a film? I have, but I, I've never made any attempt to yeah. do that. I, I think that's something that, I, well, I don't know anything about in terms of actually doing it. Um, and that would be a whole different skill set that I'm not sure I have. Ah, yeah, yeah, you yeah, got, you got to, I think that, I think not novelists, screenwriters, journalists, I think they can all translate pretty well, um, mm. you know, across the board. Like, you know, like, I mean, the, the, um, I don't know if you if you're of searching for Jimmy Page was uh, optioned or was was there any was there well or is there a push out, for it? It just came out October the twentieth, and no, I I would love that, and and yeah. I do think it would make a good film. I think there's a lot of visual aspects of it, and I think in visual terms when I write. Uh, so Cameron Crowe, if you're listening, I'm available to talk. <laughs> And I, I can't help but think he would be perfect. I mean, I loved Almost Famous and or maybe some up and coming hungry director would want to take a shot. But I would love that. But no, I've not heard any. So, nobody's made any overtures. Do you see how close I am to this microphone? Yes. I was this close to Cameron Crowe for about because <laughs> I so I'm in Los Angeles. So I do background. extra. I haven't done it since like 2017, but I was doing background extra work. And uh -huh. I just, oh, well. and I just got called on to uh, the show he did called, it was, it was, it was a show that totally failed. Mm. What was it? Um, it was about roadies. It was called roadie roadie or roadies okay. or something like that. And Luke, uh, Luke, Luke Wilson was in it. And okay. um, I was just sitting there. It was like a 10 PM call time. And it was one in the morning where they were, we were about to do this, you know, scene, and the assistant director is like, okay, I need you to cross over here. And then when, when this happens, uh, come back this way. And I'm like, all right. And I'm just like, I was just tired. And I'm sitting there. This guy goes, how you doing? I'm like, I'm tired, man. He goes, yeah, so am I. And I look up and it's Luke Wilson and me and him are talking. And I'm oh, going, wow. oh my God. And, and then it's, you know, it's like action. Okay, great. So the way they had me go and Cam I knew Cameron Crowe was directing, but I hadn't seen him yet. The way they had me go though. There was this small gap between me and a and a light stand, and then Luke Wilson's right here screaming. They're they're in a he's a, it's a argument scene, so he's like screaming, and I'm like this, and I'm trying not to look at him so I don't like get him out of you know, mm -hmm. and so I'm just like sitting there. They're having this huge argument. I can't move. I can't get out of the scene. I have to wait till the scene ends. And then and Cameron Crowe kept coming up to him and giving him a little. He's like, okay, cool, that was good, but let's blank. And I'm just like listening, going. Oh, I'm listening to Cameron Crowe direct, but oh, Cameron Crowe directed because um, Eric Stoltz directed my movie yep. and, mm -hmm. and Cameron Crowe directed Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And so I kind of wanted to go, hey, Cameron Crowe, you know, I'm <laughs> like a writer and I know, you know, and, but I, it's, they were just so busy working and I, they, yeah. I, they did about seven or eight takes that scene. There were, so there was like seven or eight times I had to sit in this like corner to stay out of frame as mm -hmm. luke wilson's screaming and then the cram and crow's giving him coming up and giving him notes and the way oh he was giving goodness. him notes was so glorious because it was just a seasoned you could tell a seasoned director who isn't being arrogant who isn't mm -hmm. he it's a seasoned director who goes oh wait and goes up to an actor and is talking just about adjustments and not telling him how to say lines and and you just see the actor just going you know, like going inside himself, uh, you know, Luke Wilson going, oh, okay. And you could see him kind of dive, uh, putting his own formula together on mm -hmm. how to take the note. And it's just to see it on that level, that that's that's a spiritual transcendence, just to see that yep. kind of work on that level. Yeah. Blew my mind. That's fantastic. So thanks, Cameron Crowe, for uh, taking a look at Searching for Jimmy Page. I, yes, thank you, Cameron Crowe. Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I'm available for a Zoom chat any old time. Zoom chat? Fly <laughs> you to Los Angeles. All right. Oh, Zoom oh hell yeah. Chat. Come God, on. I would love to go back to Los Angeles. Do they still do that? The last time I was there, and this was a long time ago, I did the, um, it was at the time called 
grave line tours. I think it's called Dearly Departed now. And they take you on all of these excursions to see where celebrities have died. It's, it's really macabre, but I have oh. that sort of sensibility. So it, it was, and, and when I did that, it was right before they tore down the original Tate house you know, where Sharon Tate was murdered. Oh, so I, wow. I saw that. I didn't go right up on the property, but I, I could see it from where we were. Mm-hmm. And because that story has always fascinated. It's not the right way to put it. That it, It's jarred me from the yeah. first time I, I heard about it. And the thing is, my, my family was in California, was in LA when that happened. And my mother was pregnant with me when that happened. Oh, wow. And they were driving in um, a white Rambler, which was the same car that Stephen Parent was killed in on the property. So there are all these little strange similarities and, and conjunctions with that story. And I, I wrote an essay about it. Uh, which was published in Story South last year, I think, called Shifting Phantasmagoria about Mm. the the Tate murders. But um, yeah, for some odd reason, that's that's always been something that um, has interested me. And so what I did when I was last in LA was take that tour and see where, this sounds so terrible, but see where uh, Salminio was killed because I was this big... Uh, Rebel Without a Cause fan. When I where was where was he killed? It was an apartment building in L.A. I don't remember the street or the apartment uh-huh. building, but I, I think this was this was late seventies, and and he was stabbed to death. And I think it was a robbery that went wrong. And, yeah. Um, I can't remember where else we went. The Chateau Marmont. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and various other the landmark hotel where Janice died. Huh. And several other places. I think Marilyn Monroe's house was in there too. But that's just kind of the the, the quirky aspect of <laughs> my my um, my brain, I guess. Well, LA is so beautiful. I mean, like I don't know if you've ever done graveyard tours uh, at the grave sites in Los Angeles. I, I haven't. No. Because there's a place called Hollywood Forever, and I mean, mm. it's it just the name is cheeky itself, mm-hmm. like, and. Um, but all the people that are buried there and you just, and there's that, there's a great one in Westwood where like Andy Griffith and Don Knotts and Merv Griffin, they're all like buried over there. And just to like, and, and Marilyn Monroe's, uh, her crypt is there along with uh, mm. Hugh Hefner's crypt that just went in. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, sometimes I, it, the, the, the celebrity graves and the, and the, and the, and the other notable people from Los Angeles, you know, who've lived in Los Angeles. And it's, it's kind of fascinating to, you know, it's, it's then Hollywood forever is like set up, like to go have a picnic. I mean, it's, it's, there's swans, there's peacocks. Um, I've met people and said, Hey, you want to go have lunch at Hollywood forever? And you just drive right in and you have a lunch in front of Dee Dee Ramone's, uh, you know, <laughs> and you're just oh like, my gosh. I'm having lunch with Dee Dee Ramone. You just kind of throw out a picnic and there's waterfalls wow. and it's, but it's almost like, it's almost like that cemetery invites it. It wants you there. Mm-hmm. And it's That's interesting. Uh, yeah. It, that, that's what intrigues me about, uh, I'm from San Francisco. So uh, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. like, I feel like, I feel like um, I continue to be kind of an outsider and discovering cool yeah. things about a city that's in the same state as I grew up in, but so much there, the cities are so monumentally different and so many levels. Oh yeah. 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 You know, strangely enough, you mentioned Andy Griffith. He was my aunt's choir teacher, chorus teacher in high school. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Goldsboro high, I guess it was. In North Carolina, huh? Just a little tidbit in there, but yeah, but yeah I'm, I'm I'm fascinated. I, I it was that's why I went to California. Granted, I went to the Bay Area um, after I finished my undergrad. I've I've always had this. I've always romanticized California, as I suppose a lot of people do, and wanted to be in in the area where Haight Ashbury was, where the, the human being oh, was, the summer of uh-huh. love and all of yeah. that. So that's why I chose the Bay Area. And and my one of my brothers lived in the area too. Uh-huh. And but I, I had an equal fascination with 
LA and the whole Laurel Canyon music scene of the sixties and seventies and the whiskey a go-go and, and all that good stuff. And, um, the whole classic rock era and, you know, Pamela Debar blurbed my book. I, I was able to track her down on online and send who, who, who is that? Educate Pam- me on who that is. Yeah, Pamela Debar was one of the the GTOs which Frank Zappa put together, Girls Together Outrageously. Uh-huh. And I, I suppose the best way to describe her would be a, a groupie from the '60s and '70s. But that term, which she's trying to reclaim. Um, has such a pejorative um, meaning to it. Really what she was and what the other women in that group were, were, were rock muses. These, these were people who the bands came to town and wanted to spend time with them, wanted to meet them. These really colorful, creative, interesting women um, who put out an album. Frank Zappa produced an album of the GTOs. And so she's just this really, she wrote a book called I'm with the band confessions of a groupie back in oh, the eighties. Oh yeah. That's yeah. yeah. I, know that, I know that book. That's Pamela. Yeah. And she, so she's been very kind to me and in terms of blurbing the book and I, I and she runs a tour in LA now of all of the major rock sites from that period I, I had to go on that. To go out there. Yeah, yeah I'd I, love to do that. Oh, I'm okay. I got to look that up. Yeah. The, um, oh, you said something that was so cool, and then I got all excited about her tour. <laughs> oh my uh, gosh, I said something cool. Please remember it. Oh, you've been saying something cool for like 54 <laughs> minutes. Uh, oh. <laughs> well, it, it, has this been hard for you? Motion in general or the show? The show. No, no, the show's been you're great. This has oh, been okay. a lot of fun. Just I, I wasn't like we're just hanging out and chatting. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't trying to milk compliments, but but you went, oh, so and and, and, and you know, if 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 it, if it wasn't working, please feel free to be open about that too. So oh no, I'm I'm saying ugh because I very rarely say anything that's cool. So if you found something, please point it out. Oh, you, you just, <laughs> that's you, what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So are you in therapy? I, I, I haven't, I, I have been yeah. many times throughout my life, but I'm not at the moment. Well, I just, I just got to tell you, you might want to go in and just, uh, and just check your self-esteem because you're saying really cool stuff and just, <laughs> just take the authority of that. And maybe you, maybe you just need a little brain adjustment to go. Oh yeah, no, I got something to say. You're a writer. You create novels out of thin air. Who does that? Mm. People like that. That's why I do this show. So I can talk mm. to these people who create, you know, have an idea. And then all of a sudden I'm reading a book based on an <laughs> idea that just happened on a Thursday at two. Yeah. Who does that? Mm. We do. We do. <laughs> Let's say it loud. <laughs> well, I don't need therapy now. I'll just come talk to you. I'll make me feel better. <laughs> Um, oh my God, Christy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Christy Alexander Hallberg on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, Searching for Jimmy Page. Next week on the show, we have Peter Stom. He's the author of It's Getting Dark. Keep on reading, keep on writing. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.